Hello, K2H listeners. I am privileged to have the space to interview and just discuss important matters with Professor Bernadette Gonzalez, who is a professor in the American Studies uh, Department here at UH Manoa. And she has a brilliant book that's, I believe, just about to come out of the oven, if it's not already. It's out. And it is published by uh, Duke University Press. And we're going to be unpacking uh, this book called Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper, which is an exploration of the intimacies of imperial geopolitics through the life story of a mixed race vaudeville and film actress and sometime mistress of General Douglas MacArthur. So on that note, let's have a warm welcome to Professor Gonzalez. Welcome, Bernadette. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to talk to you about this book. You're actually the first first person I'm talking to about the book because we didn't How really exciting. do the book launch. Wow. Yeah. UH got the, the, the first voice. Um, so this is, you know, for me, I am personally um, really, you know, gr uh, drawn into stories that shift the perspective particularly from um, how stories of women can kind of help us relook at history and how it's framed. Um, but let's start with you and how you even came upon the story. Who is Isabel Rosario Cooper? Let's start with that. Okay, so um, I stumbled across Isabel Cooper and I, I talk a little bit about this in the first chapter through Ninochka Roska's novel. There's a, there's a character in there, the, Eurasia, the Eurasian Chanteuse who um, is uh, sort of a mistress of one of the ad administrators in during the colonial era in the Philippines. And she's sort of a tragic figure in that in that um, story. It's a fictional story, but you know, like any fictions about the colonial United States, um, a lot of it draws on actual history, right? Um, and so I was fascinated by this, this, this figure and I'd seen sort of similar figures, you know, it's sort of the Miss Saigon type narrative of the tragic, um, Asian or mixed race woman who, um, of course, falls in love with a powerful man and powerful white end, man, powerful white man, and in the end, um, ends up, you know, sacrificing herself um, for his um, happiness. And so, I was drawn in by that because I thought, okay, well, this is an interesting figure. And um, later on, I found out because I do work on militarism, um, and my my dad actually is a big military buff and um i found out that macarthur did have this um mixed race filipina mistress and there were all kinds of rumors that swirled around her and so i started to dig a little deeper because the rumors seemed unreliable um, um the the sort of biggest proponent of these rumors is a 1978 1979 biography of macarthur by William Manchester called American Caesar. And that's where we get a sort of um, a, a bunch of detail about this, this, um, this person, right, who um, is, is sort of treated in the sort of classic tropes of, of the mixed race tragic Eurasian, you know, um, mistress. And, um, and so I started to kind of see that repeated in a bunch of different places when I started to dig a little deeper. And what I realized is that that story, as, as I started digging deeper, didn't have a lot of historical citations. And I'm not myself, I don't think of myself as a historian. I'm not in a history department. I wasn't trained in history. Um, but I do some, you know, cultural history type of work in my own interdisciplinary um, training and research. And so I started to 
to realize that these folks were just citing each other and repeated citations sort of hard, had hardened into a particular story about her. And I thought about like, well, what does that say about the, well, one, <laughs> the, the, the history, like the, the, the unwillingness to check a little deeper when it comes to stories of women and the willingness to believe particular narrative tropes about women that, that are more comfortable or are more desired. And so um, that's where the whole project started, where I said to think about, okay, well, um, let's let's look a little bit at, at, at the story of this woman. What can we find out about her? And what does it tell us about um, the kinds of relationships, the kinds of, um, because it did happen, right? She was actually involved with MacArthur. Um, what does it tell us about those kinds of um, stories that we so hold dear, right? And, and um, when I started digging a little deeper, it became a really interesting story, actually. And so that's where that's where the book kind of came um, came into being was um, the the way that the archives both told a different story, but also the way that the archives refuse a certain kind of story. Mm, right. So you're framing this approach in kind of challenging how things are framed and how we are made to believe. Um, what history is is produced as and at the same time kind of um, celebrating this this untold story of this woman who deserves her own her own version of the story in, in a sense right and well you know and and I'm, I'm you know I was trained in a in an ethnic studies department and there are certain kinds of stories that fit better into ethnic studies type narratives right and um, so so even in sort of political strategies you want the the good heroine you want the the sort of unimpeachable um um type of of figure that um can carry a sort of more heroic weight and you know there's this person who was a mistress to a general right she's she's compromised she's she's not somebody necessarily who would so quote unquote deserve that kind of attention and so that also was one of the things that drew me because <laughs> i'm a little perverse in that way you know um, just you everything everybody is i was going to say there is some kind of you know fascination with the lives of unruly women and women who are objects of desire and the sexual aspect of the stories sure. it draws us yeah. all in it's not just the men Right. Sure. No, that's true. Um, what I did find was when I first started talking about the project, most of the people got drawn to that aspect of it. Like, oh, she was MacArthur's mistress. And so that association with him became the the point of interest that most people and, and up to today, right, enter into the story. If she wasn't MacArthur's mistress, if she was just anybody, any old person's mistress, it wouldn't be as interesting or as compelling, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and right. so I think that that was something that I had to both play with then and then refuse in the end, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. So then, you know, just kind of carrying forward with this whole sexual idea, though, you know, by exploring a woman and her sexual relations with a, a famous a political leader, like how how does that reinforce kind of our sexualization of the woman? You know, I, I'm just like, I know you're probably grappling with that too. Sure. I mean, actually what I did in the book was I, I, I made it um, one of the earlier chapters, right? Instead of telling the story in chronological order, I made it quite early in the book because I felt like a lot of people would expect that sort of story about this, the big scandal of MacArthur to be like the payoff, right? Like the, the, the climax of the story, so to speak. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, ha -ha. And, and um, I actually kind of um, 
diffuse that right at the be beginning. And that chapter starts with this, this, this part of the story begins with the general because I want to get him out of the way. Right. And so it's just uh -huh. sort of that, I know you're here for this mm -hmm. <laughs> acknowledgement. And then we tell the story, but then I kind of skew it. So it's told from her, her perspective, because the way the story has always been told has been from his perspective and the perspective of, um, there's this whole story around um, a, a scandal, a DC scandal, where the, the general sues a muckraking journalist. And it's it's always told around those two figures because that's how her his love letters to her come to light, right? So, oh, um, gosh, that, you that, found archive of the love letters. I did. Wow. I can't include them in the book, right? Because of copyright issues around who owns um, who owns love, who owns letters. And we see this right now with Meghan Markle, right? Getting the, oh. the ruling <laughs> around yeah. the copyright of her letters to her oh. father um, being oh. published, right? And 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 um, and so I, I, I didn't also want to center his love letters to her in the book, even though that again is so fascinating. Um, um, there are some excerpts of those letters that I include, but only because they are already included in a previous um, National Enquirer publication. Um, from like the 1970s. Um, and so I pull from those quotes because they are actually straight from the um, the actual letters, but they're not, they, they couldn't publish the actual letters in, in the paper. So can we, um, so if we're kind of setting up the stage as you presenting uh, Isabel Rosario Cooper as the main character, the protagonist, and General MacArthur is kind of the backstory, if you will. Can yeah. we just set up this backstory so people who aren't so uh, well versed in history, including myself, will know in context to what era we're talking about and what uh, General MacArthur's uh, role was in history, so that we can quickly get over that and diffuse that story. <laughs> sure. The story. Sure. Um, so, like the quick, uh, the quick and dirty uh, version of of this history. Um, and actually, I, I, I cover it in the book. Um, we begin a little bit um, pre um, pre MacArthur, right? Um, we actually begin with MacArthur's father, who was actually um, a a general at the time um, in the Philippines during the Philippine American War. So he is somebody who was, you know, who had established the American military and colonial presence in the Philippines and was a big player there. So Arthur, this is General Arthur MacArthur. And because he did that, Isabel's father is actually brought into, this is how she has, you know, like this is why she's mixed race because her father is an American soldier ah, okay. from Wisconsin. And um, he comes to the Philippines because of that war, Okay, right? Um, so the the scope of the of this history um, um, is from approximately 1898 to 1960, um, right around the time she dies, and then a little bit after, sort of like exploring her afterlives. But um, during that time, up until Philippine independence, right, um, post post World War II, the Philippines was a commonwealth for for a long chunk of that time, and. MacArthur was in and out of the Philippines for different reasons. You know, he was assigned as a as a as a, as a military officer there, and then he was brought back um, um, as well during during the 1930s. And this is when he brings that, that's when he that's when he actually meets um, Isabel Cooper. She was a she was a vaudeville star and film star at the time. Very How young. did they meet? At, at um, so that's that's kind of a mystery. Um, some folks say that they met. Um, because she was a performer, 
right? She was on the stage um, in Manila. Um, so I suspect he saw her there. Um, there's a version of the story that I kind of play with in the book where he spots her at the Olympic Stadium during a boxing match and he sends his um, political, his his aide um, to, to go over and say, hey, someone's interested in you. That's so so I actually wrote that out as a as a 1930s version screen silent screenplay in the <laughs> in the book as one of the chapters oh. in the book. Actually, it is very cinematic. I mean, when you were writing this, did you think like that? Did you think in terms of, oh, if this gets picked up by a big Hollywood <laughs> company, how would this be, you know, told? I mean, I thought about it. Um, there are some parts I think that lend themselves to a cinematic scope, but also because the book refuses sometimes that sort of definitive call on how they met or what exactly was the nature of the relationship or, um, you know, what was it like to be um, the mistress of the general in Washington, D.C. when he sets her up in a love nest in the 1930s in between his two wives. Um, okay. So, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, so these are the these are the um, the the questions that don't ever really get a straight answer. Um, and so there are moments where I speculate, where I play with fiction in the archives, um, but also moments where I kind of leave it open because it, we don't know yet. And it could be that, you know, somebody who, who gets interested in the story because of this book a little later finds out more and that would be awesome. You mentioned playing with fiction in the archives and that's just kind of fascinates me with how blurry, you know, archives are, you know, how, how we kind of on one hand think it's all fixed and then we take it for granted and that's how we pull in our uh, ways of kind of understanding things. And at the same time, when you dig a little deeper, there are these discrepancies that you have to look at what's not being archived and all that. So can we, let's take a quick break. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking, I am talking to Professor Renadette Gonzalez about her new book called, uh, Emperor's Empire, excuse me, Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. And we're just starting to scrape into like the little nitty gritty, um, dirty scandal between MacArthur and, and Cooper. But really your process of discovering this and how you decide to frame it with this kind of blurry research, not your blurry research, but the research material that you're working with and how you can, um, I guess, turn it into something so compelling and so cinematic if you will so let's take a quick break and we'll come back welcome back i am speaking here with professor bernadette gonzalez a professor in the american studies department here at uh and we're talking about her book empire's mistress starring isabel rosario cooper now we were just starting to kind of peel back the layers on the the blurriness of archive if you will and can we talk a little bit about that you know you mentioned in your book kind of the function of the colonial archive right and how you need to kind of work with it and against it um and and what is hidden behind and how do you look through that to see what how do you find the material you want to work with when it's not there and how do you use those silent spaces for your material to enrich your perspective and kind of shifting the narrative to this really fascinating character of the mistress Great. And again, the mistress is a very misleading term. And I pull that back because I know you're saying you want to take away from the sexuality 
aspect of it. But then your whole title of Empire's Mistress is so telling of the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, right? So that other metaphor we need to unpack too. So go ahead, tell us about it. Totally, let, let's, let's, there's yeah. a lot to riff on there. So actually talk a little bit about it in the first chapter um, when they talk about Empire's Mistress. Mistress can mean that very sexualized figure, but it can also mean it's like the feminine of master, right? The master of of a genre, the master of a household. And, and so in that sense, I wanted to play with that sort of doubled um, um, meaning of mistress, because I think that she is both empire's mistress in the sense that she's a sexualized figure that becomes a metonym. She is a metonym of the larger sexualized gendered relationships of the United States and, and the Philippines. Um, and, and her relationship with MacArthur bears that out. But it also um, plays with the idea that um, you know, she also had some 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 control and some power, right? In in um, in navigating the very um, shifting um, relations of of the colonial world. Um, she was very cosmopolitan. She was a very successful um, actor and performer in her own right prior to MacArthur. And in in that way, you know, you can kind of um, kind of write about the way that she had power in that relationship. Um, despite so the fact that he was a good 30 years older than she was, right? And a general. <laughs> right, so. that's all reinforcing these stereotypical relationships. But as a vaudeville performer, so you're saying, because she's mixed race and she was born and, and she grew up in the Philippines, but then she moved to the States and established her performance career there, or she was already? She didn't. So she knew that um, moving to the United States with MacArthur, um, um, and, you know, under the sort of umbrella of his promises to her as a lover um, was a huge risk. And I think that he sensed that she knew that because that was at the very height of her of her fame in the Philippines. She was just um, the, the, the silent Filipino Hollywood, so to speak, was just getting underway. Um, and so a Filipino tradition of cinema was also just getting underway. Um, that was very modern, and she was one of the sort of main figures of that um, of that birth of, of Filipino cinema. She actually had the first screen kiss in the Philippines, which was hugely scandalous, right? Oh. Um, and so she was a big figure in Manila. Everybody, she was a household name, wow. and um, and uh, so she knew that you know her relationship with the general. Um, this was very risky. On, on her part to take him up on it. So I don't know to what extent, like what the calculus was behind her her decision to move to, to DC um, when she did. But um, yeah, they were together for a few years and then um, the relationship ended quite badly um, with a scandal and I can talk a little bit about that. And then she um, has sort of a second try, you know, attempts a second try at a film career in Hollywood from around World War One to um you know when she died she she's she's named as a freelance actor what kind of role did she play in in hollywood she had a lot of very sort of extra type roles um um for the stereotypical people of color during the time so she played um chinese characters you know in film she played um uh at one point she played uh one of the harem of of in anna and uh, <laughs> and the king um she played nurses because there were a lot of World War II films that came out right when she moved to Hollywood, right? Uh -huh. She played a Japanese geisha. <laughs> um, uh, she was she had some speaking roles in Charlie in a couple of Charlie Chan films. 
So that was really interesting to kind of watch, you know, watch through these films and, and kind of account for the number of lines that she had over, over the years, right? Or the, num the, the seconds that she stayed on screen um, wow. in her second sort of, in her second cinematic movement, so to speak. But that's interesting too, that the, the idea of you kind of just looking at the minimal amount of screen time she had as a form of kind of research and a form of telling of her presence in- Oh, in, totally, yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the, early, the early films that she had, uh, she had made in the Philippines um, could not find a trace of it, right? Um, and oh. this is maybe because of, um, terrible archival practices and, and budget, but also World War II, um, the United States bombed Manila. <laughs> and so not a lot of things survived. And um, and I think that um, there was also this story, I mean, talk about the archives, right? Um, somebody had told me, um, an, another person who was doing research on Isabel Cooper was telling the story about how um, there was this, either the actor or the director, the family of one of those films, uh, uh, the family one of those film figures had some of those archival materials maybe not the actual film themselves but then their house burned down oh, right? no. <laughs> so there are all these kinds of ways in which archives um disappear and yeah. um you know and so that's why they yeah. tell us we need to put things in different places here right you know i'm making right. a film they say have several hard drives put one in your father's oh my house God. In, in california put one here and keep one with your editor so just in case you know yeah actually in the middle of writing this book in the early like i had maybe like three chapters done and i was feeling pretty casual about um about saving things my son spilled a big glass of lemonade <laughs> on my laptop <laughs> died and i was i about had a heart attack but <laughs> um yeah that was that was a moment where i was like you you tell your students to do this all yeah. the time and then you did the bad thing and didn't save your work and that's a thing you know the 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 kind of um that that insecure idea of preserving something right Sure. Um, but still, you know, I just wanted to go back to the archival material that you tried to retrieve in the Philippines. So when she was this famous uh, vaudeville actress there, were did did the Philippines were they aware of her scandal with General MacArthur? I mean, how did they receive this, and did they see her as a more of a Filipino character, or a, does mixed race? get perceived in a different way? Is it elevated or is it something else? You know, what is the perception of a mixed race? Hold on a second. Let me let me just try to get my puppy. She's all tangled up. Um, <laughs> so um, in, in the Philippines during the 1910s and 1920s, there was sort of a crisis with the American colonial government. A lot of white women were really concerned about the, the number of um, American mixed race children mm. that were um because you know there was a sort of idea that the american colonial project in the philippines was benevolent and progressive but then there were people having a lot of sex and having mixed race babies and there was this weird concern around especially mixed race um filipina american white um let me specify um progeny because all of a sudden you have these children who could be having relationships with Filipino men. And so the idea of like racial hierarchies got threatened by that, right? Not only were they evidence of the fact that the American colonial project wasn't so um, 
celibate or pure <laughs> as you know it was selling itself to be but that um it was producing these the, these children that also sort of further destabilized ideas of who had access to white women um because these pe these these children were were not purely filipina right so white women white men always had access to filipino women and white women but filipino men didn't have you know like if we're talking in purely right. heterosexual terms so that was, that was just like the rules of the colonial world yeah. um so you know so somebody like isabel had already um from from her childhood had already been sort of part of the demi monde right um her own um she was she entered the stage life really early um and her her mother who was filipina was married to a a, a much older white man who was of course at that point done with being sol a soldier he was in the he was a fireman <laughs> in the in manila so he uh, stayed part. he stayed on he stayed he stayed for quite a while uh -huh. and um and uh you know like the fact that he lived with her and they were quote unquote married he considered her his wife was unusual right um because a lot of white men didn't do that um so this is a real mixed scene i think um that was something yeah. that really kind of um became clear over the research but oh sorry um, just to kind of clarify so did so it sounds like isabel grew up in a relatively healthy environment in a sense that she had um a, a, an intact family unit so she did yeah so she did have an intact family unit um it so far as maybe when she was um maybe nine or ten okay and then um at that point in her life um um her father because of the 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 campaign to filipinize um the civil service in, in the philippines right um and and hire filipinos instead of um americans um in places like you know the fire department <laughs> he he moved his whole family back um to arizona so she came to arizona lived in maricopa for um i don't know it wasn't it wasn't very long um because um um isabel's mom was really miserable oh. <laughs> right and their relationship is interesting too so she left and it's unclear how many of her children she brought back with her i think she left the, the son and again the archives are really like mushy about this so yeah. i have to do a lot of speculation and um so she brought back isabel and that's when isabel really sort of starts getting into stage and and the stage life so and once you're in the stage life yeah once you're in the stage life in the philippines your sort of reputation is shot right like you're part of the <laughs> right you're associated right? with almost equated to prostitution level right yeah, same exactly. as in hong kong and china right yeah um, so no, so that's an interesting detail. The fact that she had lived some part of her childhood in the States in Arizona. Yeah. So she's really um, transnational in a sense already from that time. She wasn't just a Filipino so. actress. She was a mixed race transnational um, artist who is deeply underrecognized. And now you, let's, you know, we're, we're adding more flesh to who she is. And so she moves um, to the States after um, being involved with MacArthur who like you say, you know, kind of gives her this dream ticket to a, yeah. a better life. And that's much, that's later, right? That's later after she's right. established herself after her childhood on stage. But um, again, this mixed race idea. So in the Philippines, she is seen as mixed, like they don't recognize either or like for herself, what did she kind of claim for her identity? Oh, she played with it for sure, right? Like identity is real malleable um, it, during the colonial era, I, I mean, just, she um when she got cast um as um 
in in the sort of the first modern Philippine um, Filipino directed and produced film, right? Um, with Jose Napomuceno, who's sort of the god the the godfather of Philippine film. Um, they were looking for sort of like a, a modern Filipino beauty to to be cast, right? Like with a face and. They saw her. She has a kind of face that um, does really well, right? Yeah, on on beautiful. film, yeah. um, very expressive, and um, and Which the fact that she was mixed race, I think, like was um, yeah, yeah, she's light skin, and so they wanted something modern. And modern was also associated with America, right? Like um, this is right around the nineteen twenties. There's like a big push for suffrage all over the world, not just in the United States, including the Philippines. And so questions around this thing called the New Filipina were really circulating in in um, in the air, right? In terms of political, social debate. And so she kind of came to stand for that in some weird way, even though she's this figure of the demimond, right? Because she's on film, she's, get, she's getting seen, um, she's scandalous. Um, her first film wasn't the film that, that was the, the kiss, but it was a, a little bit later. And um, Jose Nepomuceno really, really wanted to push this idea of you know, he, he wanted to push Philippine culture and Philippine film. And so he wanted he wanted a Hollywood type kiss for Philippine film. And he picked her and he had to convince her. And she was like very young. right? Um, and she was, uh, I think, maybe 16 or 17 um, when this happened. And, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot to 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 imagine and to envision and she was really nervous about it but then i think about you know like what it you know he always tells the story as if he had to convince her um and then i'm like maybe maybe he did and then maybe she kind of said you know what <laughs> i'm gonna do it um and he she already knew that her reputation was shot it's not like she was trying to preserve any idea of her as this like virginal figure right um and there were already all kinds of um 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 stories that circulated about her as a performer um, and so in that sense um she had to she had to do some math right about about what it was that she was willing to pay for the price of a certain kind of fame right right interesting so before we take another break um can we just leave our listeners um with a little more uh idea of your book can you maybe read some excerpt of it so we get a kind of a more a closer idea of your approach or style? Sure, I can read parts of, um, I picked some some parts of the introduction that I think that kind of get to the main ideas of the book. Great. And so I'll start with these uh, parts of chapter one. This is not a love story. This story begins with a dead woman whose death was caused by heartbreak. At least we are told this repeatedly so that it becomes truth. Women dying for love are tragically beautiful, inspiring wistful longing. The pathos of thwarted romance obscures what might otherwise be ugly or bitter or something yet unimagined. She is caught in a familiar and worn plot, a cliched convention of empire. Surrounded by the chaos and uncertainty of war and colonial occupation, the lovely exotic young woman falls in love with a powerful white soldier. Their affair is illicit but inexorable, defying the obstacles of race, culture, and nationality that ultimately derail their devotion. The last act always ends with her impossible yearning for his fidelity and return. Her death is inevitable. She can only die in this plot. He goes on to live the rest of his life happily ever after, his future secured by her sacrifice. Nonetheless, it is a delicious and compelling fiction told again and again until it acquires a force of its own. 
This book is an attempt to unravel the story of one particular dead, beautiful woman named Isabel Rosario Cooper, whose life has always been reduced to this story or something like it. So fast forward a little bit. Sorry, she's, I'm gonna just need to stop for a minute. <laughs> she's just grappling with um, a huge piece of, piece of cardboard. I love it. This is Bernadette's puppy playing in the background <laughs> as Bernadette desperately tries to focus on reading her book. <laughs> yes, she's a, the I, think, world. I think the Lucy shirt for Lucifer is kind of becoming clearer right now. <laughs> so she wants to hear her mommy read. Yeah. In 2016, I found myself on a dry, grassy hillside in Culver City in Los Angeles County looking for Isabel Cooper's grave. It had been almost two decades since I had first encountered what I thought was a stock fictional character of the Eurasian seductress. Over that time, I pursued her story in piecemeal fashion. The trip to Holy Cross Cemetery was a kind of pilgrimage nearing the end of different leads I had followed over time. At the cemetery, the graves of luminaries like Bella Lugosi, Bing Crosby, and Rita Hayworth are marked and identified for zealous fans of Hollywood history. The object of my search did not burn so brightly. I imagined the simplest headstone marking her plot, some kind of resolution to my search. I'd called earlier for her plot number and enlisted the help of my mother's childhood friend who was a longtime Hollywood resident. Isabel Cooper's final resting place is not easy to find. The cemetery's well-kept grounds are expansive, and even with small concrete markers denoting the rows of gravestones, there is no sign of her burial ground. I consult the map given out at the entrance. I walk up and down the hill that is marked in the map as her section, the hazy sun beating down on my head. My mother's friend and I get excited when a number closely matches the one in the crumpled sheet in my hand, only to be foiled by the seeming lack of logic in the ordering of the graves. The numbers and letters on the circular concrete markers make no sense in their arrangement. It is getting hotter and the hill feels steeper. Finally, a wandering groundskeeper helps us find the plot's location. He takes a look at the grave number and motions for us to follow him. As we walk along a gradually sloping knoll, he explains how the plots are arranged. It was the lack of a gravestone that had thrown us off. The groundskeeper identifies the unremarkable parcel of scrubby, thirsty grass near the top of the hill as Isabel Cooper's final resting place. So if this is the number, he says, then her feet would have been over here and her head would be over there. He gestures over the plot. I can't help but imagine Isabel Cooper's body laid out under the grass. That's my dog. <laughs> we thank him and he ambles off. I take photographs of her burial site, site with the, st the stretch of grass captured in the images is lackluster. A shade tree stands sentinel with a vague outline of the city peeking over the hillside. It provides the only cool spot in this place. We linger for a few minutes, but there really is nothing to see. Wow. That, if you're just listening, that was an excerpt of uh, Bernadette Gonzalez's new book, Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and continue talking to Professor Gonzalez about her process in discovering this amazing character and how, what it says about history and how it actually reveals, you know, um, colonial structures that have shaped a world that we tend to just buy into. So don't go away. Welcome back, K2H. We are talking to Professor Bernadette Gonzalez, Professor of American Studies here at UH Manoa, and we are talking about her book, Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. Now, Isabel, I mean, sorry, I called you Isabel. <laughs> what do you, actually, that's a great segue, is how much you allow yourself to become her when you're writing about her. Yeah, I mean, because, and this is because of some of the archival holes, right? It kind of gave me permission 
to speculate. Um, and not only because other people, other historians had speculated before me, but also because Isabel Cooper herself played with um, the archives, right? Played with official documents, um, took on different names over the course of her life. So she, you know, she she goes by Dimples as a stage name in the Philippines. She goes by Elizabeth Cooper when she's trying to frame herself as more American, um, as an Amer you know, like to cast herself as more Amer the American beauty um, type of um, figure in Philippine cinema. She goes by Chabing later on in her Hollywood career. Um, so she and she goes by Belle, um, um, you know, um, Douglas MacArthur calls her Belle. Um, and so there's all kinds of different names that she takes on. And so this kind of play with creativity, um, I thought was was also permission, right, to be a bit more creative in the way that um, what kinds of, you know, in the way that I thought about what kinds of genres could better capture her story. Mm. But that's interesting. That brings up kind of the, the performative side of, of a character and what masks people choose to put on in front of which audience, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so when I started digging, actually, and this came out um, a bit more, um, you know, she, she was aware of this already quite early on as a stage performer, right? So she played with um, publicity and the way that people would write about her. She would feed into rumors. She would, you know, and so there's a lot of stuff that, you know, when I started digging into the archives in the Philippines, um, when she's written about as an actor and a performer, there were always these rumors about her and there were always, you know, so I'd, ha I'd have to track them against like a sort of timeline that I had assembled of where she was, she was going or where she wasn't and go, wait, that can't be true because she's over here during that time. But, you know, this industry magazine is writing about her as if she's doing X or Y. And so, you know, you wonder to what extent she fed that machine, right? She fed that animal, right? Because it's part of her career, right? To to create speculation and um, desire around her. And then later on in Hollywood, you know, she's, she's not quite as much in control of, of the stories because she's just a minor actor, right? She's, she's, you know, she, she barely gets speaking roles in, in films and she's barely scraping by. But what, where you see her kind of exercising her, her um, creativity is in the way that she, um, she enters into the official um, uh, historical record, different kinds of things about herself. Sometimes she's Filipina, sometimes she's white. Sometimes she claims that she's Javanese Indonesian, which she's not. And so, you know, and she's definitely, definitely always a lot younger than she actually is because it's bad to be an aging actress in Hollywood, right? right. Um, and so you see her really kind of um, um, playing with the kinds of fictions that can adhere to somebody and and, and playing into a role rather than, um, rather, you know, so she's lying on official documents. She, she lies on her, on um, a marriage certificate. Um, she's entered as white in, in a 1940 um, census, right? By her sec, uh, by her first husband, who is not MacArthur. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there are these, all these kinds of things that, that pop up in the archives and you realize, wow, um, that's off. <laughs> or, wow, her birthday moved like a whole decade earlier <laughs> or later, <laughs> you know? And you kind of have to appreciate the kind of, um, the kind of gall, right? Like the audacity that this woman had in just kind of saying, screw it, right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell my story. And um, you've told all kinds of fictions about me. So I'm going to tell fictions about myself too. Well, but so in addition to the fascination of the fictional character, um, 
material that she offers is I am intrigued by your effort to be that kind of detective role in looking for those places and trying to match and 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 see the discrepancies to discover these fictions that she's created for herself. Yeah, I mean, again, like I, I mentioned, I am not a trained historian, so I had to kind of figure out how to sketch out uh, as detailed a history as I could um, and, and figure out which documents I could rely on to kind of say, okay, I think this is her birth date. She, she has like five different birth dates <laughs> that could be possible. So let's go somewhere in the middle. And, uh, you know, like you have to kind of match it up with other people's timelines as well. And so it became a little bit of that. And then, you know, you, you just have to kind of keep digging in, in, in these moments. I, I felt very much like a detective, right? There, were, there was this, um, this set of archival materials that a friend had actually sent me about them because they were at this library and they're like, I know you're doing research on, on this figure and I found such and such. And um, so they sent me their, their digitized files and there was this random little note in there about like some kind of um, piece of the file that hadn't been opened up um, due to whatever, whatever. So actually at that point, I contacted the, the archivists and asked them, hey, is this, is this something that I can look at now? Um, have the there's restrictions on this document been lifted? And that's when I um, that's when I came across one of like the the best finds that I had, which was this this letter that she had written um, to Drew Pearson, that sort that that journalist who had sort of um, taken her under his wing during the the MacArthur the MacArthur scandal at the end of their relationship. And um, she has this great photograph of her in Hollywood. Um, and it's the only sort of casual photograph we have. I mean, I could find anyway of her in Hollywood. Um, and I don't know if you can see this. Right in the book? That's in the book. Ah, there it is. You know, she encloses this photograph of her and just kind of tells this story about, you know, how she's so hopeful about this, this possible role that she's landed and that this might be it. This might be the role that she has. At, um, um, and it's one of her last roles. It's the second to last role she has in Hollywood. And it's uh, she plays a Filipina, right? Oh. During World War II, okay. and um, but it also coincides with sort of MacArthur's return, and her she gets nervous about. Um, so there's this whole story that accompanies that, that photograph <laughs> about. Sorry, <laughs> hold on. Um, that that accompanies that story about how she's nervous that. Um, she's been found out like the, the other Filipinos on the set have been talking about her and kind of know about her relationship with MacArthur, but she's not clear about whether her relationship with MacArthur is, is, is suspected to be sexual or not. She frames it as very, very much paternal, right? She frames herself because she's so much younger. Um, and she's also trying to cast herself as younger because her character in the film is younger. So she doesn't want to lose a job. So she frames herself as being a child when she meets MacArthur, which I mean, it's a, you could argue she was. <laughs> and that he took a very paternal role, like he would take her out for ice cream and he, he paid for her tuition. I was interested in her education. So I kind of like play with that language a little bit because she's lying through her teeth through this to this um, producer who yeah. who's excited about this connection, this real life connection of this actress to a real life person, MacArthur, because the whole story is a World War II story. Right, and I keep sorry thinking back about the analogy of the title Empire's Mistress in the sense of that mistress in the definition of kind of like the sexualized othered woman is that this colonial paternal power in caring for, you know. Totally. You know, the person right. that needs protection. 
is important. Well, there's all kinds of um, perversions of that, right? Because, you know, the, 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 the most titillating thing of their relationship is that um, he referred to himself as daddy um, to her and she was baby girl, right? So there was already those kinds of valences right. um, to their relationship. Um, part of that was the age difference. Part of, part of it was a sort of paternalistic colonial relationship, right? right? That is also reflected in their personal relationship. And so, um, you know, and in this moment, well after the relationship where she's filming um, a story about a, an American heroine in Manila, um, that's, you know, right around, sort of revolves also around World War II and his role in it, because he was a massive figure in the Philippines during World War II, you know, the whole I shall return MacArthur thing. He was in the Philippines when, when, um, when you know, the, the December 7th, 8th, um, um, Japanese military, you know, bombed, well, here in Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, but in the Philippines, all kinds of other military um, installations there that were American military installations, right? So he was there. And so, and it was seen as a failure on his part, right? And eventually um, he and um, some other folks were driven out um, and escaped because um, they were seen as too important to be taken captive, right? Well, and this is right around all the Bataan Death March, all that stuff, right? So it was a mess. Um, and so this film is sort of set during that time. Wow. So meanwhile, so, he's filming in Hollywood, yeah. and he's over there kind of navigating yeah. this. Yeah. But this film um, happens in the 1950s. So he's back and the oh. war is over, right? And so um, it's it's right around the time where he talks about like, you know, old, old soldiers never die, they just fade away, blah, blah, blah. This is whole like um, post-war military political positioning oh. on his part because he wants to be president, right? <laughs> or oh. he wants to be seen oh. as presidential. And so there's all this stuff that's happening and she's filming this tiny, tiny, you know, almost indie film in Hollywood, right? It's got Anne Dvorak who's sort of a, in the lead, who's sort of like more of a rebel figure. You know, she's not conventionally beautiful. She's an older actor at the time. And so, but she, you know, like she has a speaking role. Right. Um, for, and it's a substantial speaking role, she feels. Uh, I don't know how much of it gets left on the cutting room. What is the yeah. film called? It's called, oh my gosh, of course, I'm totally blanking on it. Um, um, hold on a second. I've got her filmography at the very back. Hey, Lucy. I know, baby. The film is called I Was an American Spy. Huh. Yeah. Of and course. Her, again. Yeah. Her part, ironically, yeah. her name is Lolita. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, oh no. So I know, right? <laughs> okay. I don't know if that was on purpose or anything, but there it is. I'm just going to leave it there. Another conversation need to do for another hour. I know. In wrapping up this um, interview, maybe you would like to share a little bit more of your book to leave our listeners kind of wanting more and wanting to learn about your book empire yeah is there any particular um part of the book that you might want to find out a little bit more about well, you mentioned the archives and i'm still fascinated about that because you said that you know she empowered herself by creating this fictional kind of so-called truths about herself that kind of get <laughs> archived and and i just think it's really interesting how we form our understanding and impressions of people based on what we see, but how do we look beyond that? Like, how do we look into spaces? I'm really interested in silent spaces, and I don't know if there's anything that speaks to that. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe um, her death certificate. Ooh. It's one of the last chapters, because I, um, I end the book with um, the story of her suicide, right? Um, 
because that's always used as the moment that confirms that she is this tragic Eurasian. That's the moment where she's tied back to MacArthur and it, you know, um, it's 1960. Their relationship had ended in the mid thirties. <laughs> and so it's interesting that even through two and a half decades, right? She's still tethered to this man. She's had two husbands in the interim. She's had a Hollywood career of, you know, like not, not particularly um, remarkable, but pretty typical for a mixed race actor um, during that time. And she never had children. She never had children as far as we know. Um, you know, and, and so I will, I will read the little riff I had about the death certificate that we do have of her. Okay. The precarity of her life filters through the death, the text on her death certificate. Last occupation, actress, number of years in last occupation, 20, name of last employer or firm, freelance. At the time of her death, Isabel Cooper had been in Hollywood for nearly two decades, although she had not worked actively in films since 1953. While her age was recorded as 46, she was closer to 50. A 50-year-old woman of mixed race in Hollywood was as good as dead. In a film industry structured by the power of the studio and enamored of youth, the aging Isabel Cooper was already a ghost. By the time of her death, she had not worked in years. The document is issued by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, and it describes the death of one Isabel Rosario Cooper on June 29, 1960. She is found in her home, a squat two-story modernist walk-up apartment building just two blocks south of Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Frank Kenimer is listed as the informant if other than spouse, that's her first husband. The information in the death certificate contains his knowledge of his former wife, color or race, white, age 46. Her death leaves the narration of her life to him. It returns her in some ways to the woman narrated in the 1940 census. In the final accounting of her life, Isabel Cooper could no longer lie about her age. What is recorded is closer than the number she had claimed a decade earlier while dancing hula in the seven seas fighting for bit parts in Hollywood. Her race too becomes fixed rather than malleable, a tool that might lend her a leg up for a rare paycheck. Birthplace, Philippines. Place of death, Los Angeles. The dead woman at 6422 De Prey Avenue was a long way from home. Or perhaps in the end, someone like her would always find home in the heart of empire. Thank you for that. That was, uh, again, an excerpt of uh, Professor Bernadette Gonzalez's book, Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. And to leave it on a note that is so certain it, through a death certificate, kind of, I guess, is an interesting um, contrast to what we've been exploring in the blurriness of the, the archives that, that came to bring you to this point in the completion of a book that you tried to unravel her story in so many different levels. So there's still so much I want to unpack with you. Hopefully we're gonna have another chance. I look forward to reading the entire book. Um, how, how can people access the book? Is it out in? It is out, um, you know, uh, you can order it through Duke University Press um, and oh, hold on, uh, there's a 30% discount code I have for it. Um, let me find it. Our, uh, Kate, uh, Facebook page or something. Yeah. yeah, it's on my Facebook page. So you can friend me on uh, on Facebook, Bernadette Gonzalez. But um, you can also um, you can also find um, it on Duke University Press. And the the discount code is. Um, I don't think we're allowed to promote discount. Oh, never mind. Um, you can you can you can find me for the discount code. I'm more than happy to give it to you. You can find it on Amazon now. It's it's officially out. So. 
Okay. Um, one final question, and I know this is going to be hard to just reduce it to like this minimal time, but I wanted to take a chance to connect it to you as an Asian American woman creating space for this to resituate the history and how we can shift our understanding of um, what we know through stories like these. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that you know, my daughter is really interested in film and filmmaking. And so one of the things that, of course, you know, we try to expose her to are all the films that have Asian characters in them or are done by Asian Asian women or Asian people. Um, and you you really sort of see the 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 flatness or the uniformity of um, of of representation of of Asian people and Asian people are complex and contradictory and you know um highly um creative and really really different from each other and so um in 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 creating a story like um isabel narrating her story i wanted to kind of um expand and create a more capacious kind of um set of narratives that maybe we can put into play for narrating our stories rather than sort of only you know only having to work in um in th these narrow kinds of genres so as in academia, though, do you feel like you have a responsibility on behalf of Asian American women to create voice? Or is there a way you can insert this into the, um, you know, to challenge this kind of predominantly white? Um, oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole story is really is, is about speaking back to um, the kinds of not just, um, you know, everyday desires that force our stories into such narrow kinds of genres, right? Narrow kinds of of um, patterns and uh, and um, archetypes, yeah. but rather to expand the the kinds of ways we understand um, we can we can imagine our stories being told, but then also to understand why is it that we're so drawn to those archetypes? What is it about the what is the power of the archetype? What is the power of that Eurasian mixed race shantos that that fixes her story in that and contains it? Right, it's like a cage, mm. and so. Um, the, the exercise of writing the book was really about kind of um, uh, understanding how that power worked and the narrative power of that works, and then also then trying to figure out ways around it. Exactly. Recognizing what we're reduced to and refusing that and creating bigger exactly. space. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you so much. Renadette Gonzalez. And uh, good luck with your book and uh, look forward to any more projects from you. And I'm always happy to chat with you on the side once you've read it. Thank you. <laughs>